0: Hello, my name is Ohama, and I live on a potato farm in Western Canada. You had this underground recording studio underneath uh, a farmhouse in the middle of this vast prairie like some kind of post-apocalyptic vision. Is uh, is that at all what it's like? Yeah, that's exactly what it looks like. And I really like it, because I could come to a city like Toronto and visit, and then go home to the isolation again. I hate California. But I love New York. Nice place to visit. Where do you call? lays down the tracks for his own records in the basement
1: of his parents' house on a potato farm on the plains of Rainier, Alberta. He records all the sounds himself, and like Thomas Dolby, Howard Jones, and Laurie Anderson at the start of their careers, he performs solo on stage.
0: I think you get a lot of power growing up in a place like that, not just personal power. Uh, it's not like living in the city. And, and I also think that being isolated, I'm not affected by a lot of things, mm-hmm. which is, it's bad on the one hand because you don't get all the influences, but it's good on the other hand you can focus a lot better. I don't get caught up in, in the trends and things so much.
2: you're listening to the Tuesday Morning Show. That's every Tuesday from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m., 90.3 on the FM dial in Montreal, or ckut.ca online. Today we'll be airing a very special interview, Tona Ohama, who in the 1980s made waves across Canadian college radio uh, with his catchy minimal wave music that he made while living and working on his parents' potato farm. While Tona remained fairly obscure, especially outside of Canada, about six years ago, Stone's Throw Records released a compilation put together by Veronica Fasica that prominently featured Ohama's music and gave him renewed recognition to our generation. So we got in touch with Ohama to talk to him about what it was like to create music in such an isolated environment outside of any major city's music scene and what he's up to these days. So stay tuned and Here's our interview with Tona Ohava. Thanks again for uh, agreeing to to talk to us for this interview. Really appreciate it.
1: You're welcome. <laughs> Right. I'm not sure I'm going to have anything to say, Scott. Which oh. is always interesting.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's all right. I think there'll be I think there'll be plenty to discuss. Um, I guess first of all, I give listeners a little bit of an introduction um, uh, of your work um, as Ohama, and I think a lot of listeners' first introduction to you or maybe all they know, um, given kind of what you say in your in your tracks like for example on the drum where the first the first thing you say is uh, I live on a potato farm in Western Canada so that's kind of people's first introduction to you Can you tell us a little bit about um, about the potato farm in Western Canada or why you live there?
1: Uh, sure um, we actually lived on the biggest potato farm in Western Canada
2: oh, is that your family
1: yeah it was my fa- family's business my dad was potato king of the world. They called him that because he won the Toronto Royal Winter Fair uh, awards for Seed and Table Potatoes in 1965. And then he did it again in 1967. That had never really happened before, where a farmer had won both awards. And uh, they were really, you know, when I grew up in the 60s, they were well known. There, There were people from all over, from Idaho, California, uh, even Australia, they'd come visit and uh, meet with my dad. Wow. it was a big deal, big deal in potatoes.
2: <laughs> Sounds like it. Um, how did your... It, was it like a multi-generation uh, business, or did, did your dad start the potato farm?
1: Oh, yeah, my, da- my dad started it. Okay, he uh, was born in Calgary in 1912, uh, right in Chinatown. And um, apparently ended up in Vancouver in Steveston and that's where he decided to become a fisherman but he was born on the prairies and that's how he met my mother who worked in the fishing canning factory Um, so they got married, they had one child, my sister and then the war happened World War II where all the Japanese Canadians had to move inland or they were interned Uh, my father was not interned Uh, The story I heard, and I only can go by what I was told, was they were given 48 hours to either move or they were going to be interned. So my father, I guess, would have been 30 at the time with a wife and a daughter, and he just walked away from everything, packed up the truck, and drove to Calgary. Wow. That's it's kind of hard to imagine that you would just walk away from your home and your fishing boat and everything. But he had a... He's one of the few Japanese Canadians who were not put into a camp because he just left. And he came to Calgary. Because he grew up here, he he had connections, he knew people. And uh, the Japanese Canadians, again, were not allowed to own land or anything like that. So people in the community... Through gentlemen's agreements, let him farm land. And I read one story where he decided to try growing potatoes. So he started with 55 acres, and the neighbors like laughed at him. They said, "You'll never sell that many potatoes. It's impossible." <laughs> and uh, I think by the end, he he had grown the farm to about 2,000 acres. Wow! Wow! Oh. So, it all started from him he has many many brothers and the family is quite huge i have over 40 cousins but my dad would have been the leader of that family group he was the one who who started the farm and then brought everybody from the camps to come work on the farm
2: wow that's really really impressive uh, thank you for sharing that with us and and especially in the face of all the adversity that he must have faced just to still um, to still start that venture and succeed in it so well beyond people's expectations is really laudable yeah yeah wow,
1: he was a gambler, I'll say that, and an <laughs> entrepreneur, so I'll go on a bit about him because you you I think you need or listeners might need to know or want to know um. Just what a remarkable person he was he brought the first pivot irrigation system to western canada the first potato harvesters from america he brought them here mm. he uh, built a potato chip plant so we weren't just farmers we had factories mm-hmm. things like that so you know everybody pictures it's like this little house on the prairie but it was actually a pretty big place yeah and that's what really afforded me to be able to build a studio in the house in the basement
2: what was it like growing up on the farm and did you grow up with I mean given that uh, the the work you created did you grow up with a really musical background
1: I'd have to say no <laughs> um, as as a person and I listen to music but certainly didn't play it
2: and at what point then did did you start to play music or be, become interested in it beyond uh, as a listener?
1: I don't think I ever really did that. Like, I don't consider myself a musician. Mm-hmm. I make records, so I consider myself a recording artist. But I would never call myself a musician. I've, I've got lots of musician friends, and they're amazing. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not like that.
2: So, did you? Do you not? Did you not? Ha- so, you didn't have like a. A, a classical music background or any classical oh, music no. training like that
1: no no no, 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 I took piano lessons in high school for a few months and just went, No, that's not interesting at all. <laughs> not gonna <I> do that.
2: <laughs> can you tell us a little bit then about when you know how you came to build this recording studio in your in, in on the in your parents' farm and and um How old were you when you did that? Hmm. I guess I was twenty. Okay. Um, Yeah. And and how did that come about? I guess. Well, um, here's here's what happened. I just
1: graduated. I went to the University of Calgary, and I wanted to become an architect when I was young. So I thought the best path towards that was to get a degree in engineering. So I did that, and by I'd say, you know, third year, I knew that's not what I really wanted to do. So I just finished my degree just to finish it. And my whole plan I I was playing in a cover band called Merlin, and we would, you know, play parties and things, but our focus was maybe prog rock. We wanted to do rock music, but with a synthesizer slant to it in a way that hadn't been done before. So that was always in the back of my mind as soon as I graduated, I had a drummer, I had a bass player, and we put a band together. And my plan was to spend five years, go on the road, make records, and just see what happened for five years. And at the end of that five-year period, I was either going to pack it in and go do something else, or maybe we were going to make it. Here's what happened, though. We were a trio. We were looking for a guitarist at the time, and we auditioned guitarists for months and months. and. It was getting really depressing because we weren't finding anyone who would click with us. And finally, this guy named Blaine walked in the door. He was perfect. We we jammed for a couple hours and we went, we just found our guitarist and we knew that we had our band. Just like that. We were sitting around that afternoon. The guitarist didn't know that he was in the band. He left. And that's when my dad knocked on our door and he was crying. I'd never seen him cry before. And he said, son, I need your help. Can you come back to the farm and set it up for the next season? Because his manager had left him for the competition. And uh, they had this new bag tire. They couldn't figure it out. They, you know, he knew I was smart enough to figure that out. So he asked me to come back. And so I went. I broke up the band just before it started. And people, you know the other members in the band after what we had been through were really upset mm-hmm. but i really didn't have a choice yeah. i thought okay i'm gonna go home to the farm and take care of this Yeah. so
2: <sighs> that that must have been really hard hard for you to do
1: i was like i said about 1920. i just graduated from with my degree in engineering and i felt like i had gone through four years of really tough schooling just complete something that I didn't even want to do. I just, I spent four years and I thought, okay, now I'm done. Now I can do what I want to do, which is music. And then I just gave that up to go help my family. So I was pretty angry and it took me time. I was a young kid, I can remember. I was just angry at my father, angry at everything. Just an angry kid. And I went out into the Badlands, which are close to our farm and there's this There's this beautiful spot where I used to go meditate, and it just came to me. I went, okay, if I cannot be happy uh, in this situation, that's, life's not worth living. You gotta learn to become happy, no matter what your circumstances are. So I, within a day, it's like I just, my whole attitude changed. I went, okay, I can do it here. I don't have a band, but I can do something else. And that's when I started to build a recording studio. And Bruce Toll, who is my bass player, is from Toronto, definitely a big influence on me because he was sort of pushing me, to, he was older than me, and saying, why waste your time putting a band together, going on the road? You should make records. Records are where it's at. And uh, he came to visit, and he brought these albums that I'd never heard he brought. One of them was John Fox's Metamatic Another was Tin Drum by Japan, and the third one was Human League's Dare. Mm -hmm. They're all synth-based sort of albums. But John Fox really, it it was just like hearing it, I just knew instantly, I couldn't do that. Now I've got a place where I can do it, and I've got a job where I'm going to make enough money that I'm not struggling as a musician. I can probably get a bank loan and buy a tape deck, things like that. So it really, it took a couple of years, but... I think about two years, to build the whole studio and learn how to
2: make a record. Wow. That's that's not an uh, insignificant amount of time for someone in their early 20s, though. Like, <laughs> two years can seem like a lifetime.
1: Obviously. No, but uh, yeah, I, I was committed, though. It was my family. I ended up spending 10 years there. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because I'm Asian or something, but for 10 years, I supported my parents, really. I ran their businesses, and as a reward, I guess, on the side, I got to make this recording studio. But I knew I could never enter the music business in the traditional way. Mm -hmm. I was never going to be able to go play live for any length of time or anything like that.
2: You really truly were, I guess, a working artist in, in every sense of the word. And from my understanding, this is the era where you started to get some recognition for your work. You started releasing, um, you released a few, was it a few cassettes and then um, an album under the name Ohama? Um, And this was your your Minimal Wave synth-based work. And you did start to get a lot of recognition um, in the college radio, independent radio circuits in Canada now.
1: Well, I think, Scott, no matter what your situation is, the things you think are weaknesses are actually strengths. I've seen that over and over and over again. So for some people, you think you're isolated out there on the farm. That's a weakness. It's actually probably what got me more recognition than anything.
2: Wow. Yeah.
1: It wasn't wasn't planned. Can't plan something like that. <laughs> uh, you mentioned, like, to this day, people remember I start that song by saying, Hello, I'm O'Hama. I'm from a potato farm in Western Canada. Um, that's not supposed to be on that track.
2: Really? Yeah. Can you tell me really? how it ended up on there?
1: <laughs> well, yeah. I, I, uh, there was a thing called the Contact List of Electronic Music. Mm-hmm. It's run out of Vancouver by Alex Douglas, and it was a magazine, a paper magazine, where people who were interested in electronic music would contact each other. So if you've seen the magazine, it's everybody had a little paragraph, said what they did. And that's how I was in touch with people from France or Spain or Germany, all over America. I was connected to these people through the mail. So the only difference between then and now is maybe the speed with which things happen. Well, there was a huge environment of electronic people around me, even though they were distant. That's how I ended up contacting the people in France who were putting together this box set. So I submitted a track and I thought, well, instead of writing a letter, I'm just gonna tell them who I am. Mm -hmm. So that was just my introduction to them. This is my track. My name's O'Hama. I live on a potato farm in Western (laughs) Canada. It was not meant to be part of the track.
2: Wow. That's so interesting, not only because I didn't know that, but also that even though you were Maybe somewhat isolated as a artist, being that you lived on a farm and, and not in a city where some of these art scenes tend to, to grow, you still had a way to connect with other artists, not only in Canada, but it sounds like across the world.
1: Yeah, I really felt like I was part of a community.
2: And it is, as I mentioned, I think before, like, it was one of the questions I wanted to ask because as someone from a younger generation, I think a lot of us find it hard to understand how how those p- networks can still grow in a day in an age before social media or before the internet where it is much easier for us now but as you said those networks still were there just maybe it was just you know the speed of communication was maybe a little bit slower
1: <laughs> yeah you'll find or i think you found this already that the world is not as vast as people think it is it's actually quite small. There's just many, many networks. So the world of medicine, the world of neuroscience, that's not millions of people. No. Thousands and thousands, right?
2: That's right. It's quite small. Yeah.
1: And so the people you know, they probably know everyone in the world working in that field, at least the important people. Same is true of electronic music. It's not that big. The music business is not that big. And If you make something that's really interesting, you don't even have to promote it. It will find its own way. You just have to put it out there and someone will pick up on it and tell someone else. That's how it's always worked.
0: said in interviews before that you like television, but on the other hand, uh, your songs about TV are quite aggressive, and you have been known to put a hockey stick into a TV set and (laughs) destroy it. It's a terribly wonderful thing, television. A terribly wonderful thing. A terribly wonderful thing. thing. I think that, in the country, it's your major contact with the outside world. Taking over from the radio in the prairies once upon a time. Definitely. Everybody watches a lot of television when they live on a farm. And... So it's good because you're entertained and you're informed, but you know how colored it is. It just gives one view of the world, and that's uh, not necessarily a good thing. So I really enjoy watching television, but I don't, don't you're like it. you I am. Careful of the way you watch it. I watch it a lot differently now than I used to. Often I turn the sound off and just watch the technical part of it.
2: So how, for how long did you, uh, end up working out of your studio, um, on the potato farm?
1: I was, I was probably active for about six years, Mm -hmm. probably in the nineties. That's when the potato farm went bankrupt and I left. There's a story there, but I'm not going to tell you that story.
2: That's all right.
1: (laughs) That's all right. That'll come out some other time.
2: Okay. Um,
1: but I, I was probably recording basically full-time for about six years. Mm-hmm.
2: And in that time, you put out, was it a few cassettes and a, a, a few um, albums? Um, can you remind me?
1: Yeah, I, I started with um, two limited edition cassettes. And then I was doing a dance performance here in Calgary at the Pump House Theater. And that's where I met my uh, Mia, who's now my wife. Wow. So Mia, very interesting woman. This is probably 1983, I'm guessing, and she was a dancer in the show and she was she was from England. So she had been there for Punk Rock and the B- Brixton Riots. And she was one of the Blitz Kids. I don't know if you know what that is.
2: I am not familiar.
1: <laughs> okay. The Blitz Kids were these kids in England that hung out at a particular club and they dressed up and they ended up starting a musical movement called The New Romantics. So, and she was one of those kids. You you can Google it and you'll find out about it. But I mean, David Bowie's Ashes to Ashes, there's people in there who are Blitz kids, for example. But going back, the reason I'm telling you about Mia is I met her and I, I just fell in love with her and I was showing her my cassette and she said, "Well, oh, if, if you're a real artist, you got to do vinyl. And that's when I put out a record. <laughs> I went straight to vinyl to impress her.
2: Wow, so and, you'd only put out cassettes up until this point. And then yeah. when she said that, you were like, okay, I just I have to put out a vinyl now.
1: <laughs> that's, that's pretty much what happened. So I put out um, a series. I put out a single, I Fear What I Might Hear, Midnight News, Midway, The Lola Record. Fair number of vinyl records and I was on many compilations. Mm-hmm. But I I was probably recording basically full time for about six years.
2: That's really cool. So th- so you got to play a little bit of shows. Yeah, I did a couple
1: hundred shows.
2: Wow, okay.
1: I managed to do that. It's not like I did thousands though and it wasn't my full time thing. But I did quite a few shows. Some were quite big. The way I would do a show is I'd go out on a weekend and do a show and then come back and work the next, you know, for my regular shift.
2: Wow. <laughs> that... Oh,
1: I played everywhere. Vancouver, I did the Powell Street Music Festival, played in Toronto.
2: Okay.
1: Played in Montreal, played in New York.
2: Oh, wow. Do you remember where you played in Montreal by any chance?
1: Uh, you'll laugh because it's probably like a hair salon. <laughs> I mean, I've done, I did play, like, real concerts. Yeah. I did the Rock Against Racism concert here in Calgary twice, but I also played a lot of, like, a shoe store, a hair salon, little grocery stores. Uh, That sounds kind of crazy, but I would take a ghetto blaster with a cassette. Yeah just set it up and say can I perform a few songs and they'd say
2: sure. I mean I I would like to point out that as you said you never really stopped making music and you've been active or making making art you've been active you know since you started in the eight in the 80s which I would like to get to as well but a few years ago you got some kind of renewed recognition because you were um featured on the Stones Throw record compilation Minimal Wave Tapes which was put together by Veronica Bassica who's a really renowned DJ especially in the new wave minimal wave and record yeah. runner uh, as well but um can you tell me about do you remember when did they contact you before um uh, when when did you find out that you were featured on there and did it did did you notice any change after you were put on or put on that that compilation
1: it was probably This is why you don't never know what's going to happen. So my friend in Vancouver, Johannes, who I wrote some songs with, I don't know how he met Veronica Mm Visica but he had been in touch with a friend of a friend of hers or something like that, and she had not even started Minimal Wave wave yet. Mm -hmm. She didn't have a record label. She was just interested in the music. So Johannes said, you should contact this woman. And I did. I sent her an email, and she wrote back, she said, if you're ever in New York, I work at the radio station, come by and we'll do an interview. And it was probably a couple of years went by before I actually talked to her again. So what happened? My son at the time was a big New Jersey Devils hockey fan, and Brodeur is his favourite player, the goalie. New Jersey was not coming to Calgary for a couple of years, so for Christmas... We decided to surprise him and take him to a hockey game in New York, All right. and that's when I wrote to Veronica and said, hey, I'm, I'm actually going to be in New York, maybe you want to do that interview. And she said, yeah, so I show up in New York City with my son, we go to the hockey games, Roder went in a shootout, it was amazing, <laughs> so we, we end up meeting up with Veronica, she takes us to her place. Mind you, I've never met her before, right? Don't know anything about her. She takes us to her place and she's got this living room full of synthesizers and drum machines. I was just shocked. And I said, who are you? She said, oh, I work at East Village Radio. And it turns out she wasn't working there. She was one of the founders. So uh, we did the interview and and I have this on video. If you have access to one of the Ohama box sets, some hidden video out there of that meeting with Veronica
2: So after that interview you ended up on on the first compilation right?
1: Yeah and that it just went on for years where she she'd contact me and say can we do this and I'd say yeah I'd say yes to everything I totally respect Veronica and whatever she wants to do I'm willing to do
2: Yeah absolutely and (laughs) you did you also uh, reissued some of your music through her record label, right? Yeah,
1: she uh, released the Potato Farm tapes in 2013. Mm. So that was probably six or seven years after I had first done that interview with her. Oh wow! So she had talked about releasing some music, but it took took a lot of years before it actually happened. And Stone's Throw again. This is I'm I'm quite ignorant of the world <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> because <wow. laughs> the Stone Throw thing happened and. All of a sudden, people here in town were like, uh, you're on this Stone's Throw Records compilation. I went, yeah? Does that mean something? And they went, yeah? <laughs> Peanut <laughs> Butter Wolf is like a god to them. And so I was like, oh, okay, that's very interesting. I had no idea.
2: <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, they're a big deal. That's for sure. Yeah, um, apparently
1: they're a big deal. So
2: Yeah. You know
1: I well, I'm very pleased to be part of that, but you know it's not through my doing. I didn't really do anything
2: well uh over it's so great that we got to hear some more of your music and have some of that released via it, so I'm happy you were um and it's actually how I came to become familiar with your work, and I'm sure many people have, but on the okay. note of you saying you were kind of ignorant of certain well you put it as the world but as of like uh, certain maybe pop culture references or whatnot but uh, when I was setting up this interview with you I kind of mentioned that one of the things I wanted to ask you about was uh, so um, on the kind of very iconic hip hop record by the group De La Soul came out in the 80s Three Feet High and Rising um, I noticed that on the intro to that album there's just like organ flourish and and then when I heard your song um it was julie is a tv set but it was an ep version it was like one of the versions of the song because there's a few i heard the Mm -hmm. same organ flourish and i noticed that your track came out earlier so i wanted so you know i thought possibly this maybe principal had sampled your song and when i look up online actually it's not just me like a lot of people attribute the sample to your record Um, but you said that might not be the whole story. And so, um, I'm so excited to hear, (laughs) um, if you have any other explanations for it.
0: (laughs) Hey, all you kids out there, welcome to three feet high and rising. Now, here's what we do. When you told me that, I was stunned. Now,
1: I don't even know what this record is, but, you know, I have the internet too, so I looked it up and I went, I've never heard of this. What the heck is all this about? They're saying this album's famous for using lots of samples. That's right. I think people have mistakenly said that's my sample, but it may actually be a sample of my record. I don't know. I don't know where they got that organ from. I can tell you where I got it from. I would love and to. And it's, it's from the Sound Ideas Effects Library. Ah. So I had this large library. It was 120 reels of tape. And if you listen to the Midnight News EP, there are hundreds of sound effects on there. They're all from that tape library.
2: Wow. Well, sound effects tape library. Is that, that like a stock, like, effects, like, tape that came out that people used, or...?
1: Yeah, it was something that a radio station would buy. It it was 120 reels of tape. Wow. Not a small thing. So a radio station would buy it to make commercials or something. I bought it so that I could... Keep in mind, um, samplers became pretty commonplace by 1986. Mm -hmm. But in 1983 or 84, they were not common. So my sampler was a tape deck. Okay. So if you heard... Like on a song like All of Wales, where there's a piece of smashing glass that snare drum, you can't just trigger that. You got to back up the tape, play it in time, and then back up the tape and play it in time and record it. Fly it in over and over. Wow. So I use this sound effects library to build all sorts of stuff on the Midnight News album. And they may have sampled my album, but. They may have used the same sound effects library. Too. I don't know.
0: What is it? One, two, three, that's a magic number. Three, yes, it is. It's the magic number. Three, somewhere in this hip-hop soul community. We're going three, they still it me, and that's a magic number. What does it all mean? That's a magic
2: number. One thing I did not want to do in this interview was only focus on the the potato farm days or <laughs> of of the music because you you really haven't stopped working on creating art since you had started uh, then and you've put out a number of stuff since. Most recently, you had put out. You've been working on these. Soundscapes that is, it, I'm not—I I, so I haven't been to one. I'm not sure, but it seems like you actually um, present them in public spaces um, and, and as kind of like a multi-surround sound um, so for people to listen to the, the ambient work you've created. Can you tell me a little bit about that as well?
1: I call them multi-ambient, and what that is, why I don't call them ambient. I call them multi-ambient because there are multiple tracks that are meant to mix with each other in any order, at any time, anywhere. So, for example, there was one called Tower. The Calgary Tower here has carillon bells that play through the downtown at lunch hours and at various times of the day. So I composed a piece that plays on the tower. And you're supposed to play the electronic tracks, on your iPhone and mix it with that track as you walk around. Okay. So That's yeah. the multi ambient aspect. So you can play this track anytime, pick any track anytime, and just mix it. Okay. The other one was done at Arts Commons, which was 15 speakers. And again, you walk through a hallway and you can play other tracks to mix with that. Uh-huh. So the albums, if you go online and you hear the albums, those were just stereo representations of what the installations were actually like.
2: So what I imagine is then, since I haven't been to one, I imagine then it's either a room or a hallway in, in, in which you described where you have... If it was the case of the room, then you would have like your 12 speakers or 15 speakers probably arranged around, um, and each one playing one of the multi-ambient tracks. And then the, the patrons actually use their iPhone to also play one of the tracks and then walk around and have that have have they kind of interact with each other.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it.
2: Wow. And and why did you I guess what what got you to shift from the work the New Wave type work you were doing towards this?
1: Yeah, New Wave was over for me when samplers hit Okay. That was the end of that so that's like nineteen eighty six. It doesn't seem like a very long time, you know, five or six years. Mm -hmm. But when you think of a band, or when I think of a band like the Beatles, who were maybe considered the greatest band ever, their career was only a decade.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, And then it was over. So I thought, five years, that's not not a bad run, and then I'm going to move on to other things.
2: Mm -hmm. So you started... I, you started making these old multi-ambient works and, and was there any reason why you wanted to do that particularly?
1: Almost all the soundscapes, I've just made them for my own personal use. Oh, okay. Do you... I, you know, these are things I play in my home and I've listened to them for many, many, many hours. They're there to help me uh, relax or put me into a different mood or slow down the passage of time and i found that's the best way to do it for me the trickiest part about doing ambient music is to not complicate it it's really hard to keep it that simple so i go on to you know when i when i look up ambient music a lot of it is really too busy for me so i just went i'm gonna make my own
2: (laughs) right right do you continue to do these installations um
1: yeah I think I'm close to done yeah. i I'm sixty years old now, so I can't okay. imagine if if someone asked me I might do it, but I don't think i'm I'm really up to doing something like that. I'm working on my next project right now
2: okay and
1: I expect that to consume a year
2: of my time mm-hmm. and for your even though if you're not doing the installations for the multi ambient um Work is there a place where people can stream or buy it? Yeah, you
1: should be able to find a lot of it on Spotify. Okay, or you know, whatever iTunes has become, it's all there. You said the radio station still has my vinyl.
2: Yes, we do. We have we have a we still have our vinyl library, in. That, That's that's yeah. really great. I found some of your stuff um, from. I imagine was I imagine it must have been donated when. About at the time that it was released, um, we definitely have um, Ohama meets um, uh, Dania. Um, mm-hmm. Love only Last while we definitely have that one. I think we have another a couple other ones too of your your LPs. Uh, okay, yeah, so great. We, we play them sometimes on the show. It's it's amazing how like the collection of stuff we have at the the library here just because it was it was sent in and we never got rid of it, and so things that can be really hard to find now. Um, mm-hmm. I've noticed that, like, I'll like I'll see a record that's really rare, especially if it's like a Canadian record or a Montreal record, and I'll go, oh, maybe CQD has it, and then I'll go find it, and I'm like, oh my gosh! <laughs> so, it's, well, Tona, thanks again um, so much for for speaking with me today, and
1: thank you very much for taking the time to interview me. Um, I was very surprised, actually, that you would find me. <laughs> I also um, want to talk to you in a year's time when the new album comes out.
2: I would absolutely love to. Hey, sounds great. Thank you very much for your time. Of course, Tona. Have a, have okay. a Great rest of your weekend, and we'll be in touch. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. CKUT ninety point three FM, the Tuesday morning show. That was our interview with Tona Ohama. The Canadian recording artist who in the 1980s made very compelling minimal wave music from his parents' potato farm in rural Alberta. I hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did. And remember, you can always listen back at CKUT's SoundCloud page and tune in to the Tuesday morning show every Tuesday from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. In Montreal, 90.3 FM, or ckut.ca online.